0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: The Audible is proud to have Trader Joe's as its presenting sponsor for 2018. Trader Joe's, where it's always game time and the game is value. What's value? At Trader Joe's, value is where quality and price come together. Snacks, great value. Drinks, great value. Fruits and veggies, great value. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram.
2: Welcome back to the latest edition of the Audible. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel. Uh, As we are taping this, it is Monday morning. The Combine for the NFL is going to start this week. I will be heading to Indy. Later on in the podcast, we'll be joined by the great Rich Eisen, who is the host and has a great cause that he does every year at the Combine. And we'll also talk to him about some Michigan football as well. But before we do that, Stu, massive stories coming out of college basketball in the past uh, week or so, and it really came to a head over the weekend and on Friday. What I wanted to ask you, before, and we're going to kind of dig into this as it relates to college sports and a college football angle to it, what do you make of all of it?
1: Well, you know, I kind of break it up into two parts. There's the Pete Thamel and Pat Forty story from Friday that, Uncovered all of these, uh, you know, documents from that the FBI raided, that show all of these, you know, this this agent's diary of all these payments and meetings and whatnot that he's reportedly made or allegedly made with all of these prospects and their families, right? So that was the initial bombshell, and people thinking, oh my gosh, like this affects so many different programs and so many different players, you know, everybody's going to be ineligible and they're going to have to cancel the NCAA tournament, then. The second part of the story, obviously, is the arguably the most explosive part. Mark Schlebaud, ESPN, reporting, I believe, a day later or maybe that night, Friday that night. there are wiretaps that sh- that showed Sean Miller, the Arizona coach, discussing with this same guy, Christian Dawkins, arranging a payment for DeAndre Ayton, their star player now, for a hundred thousand dollars. I think we can both agree that part is. You know, if Sean Miller really was on tape arranging a hundred thousand dollar payment, his career's over. I think we could both agree on that.
2: Well, right? I would say his college career. I'm sure he could go coach in the NBA. You know, it's not like the NBA is going to do anything like that. I would also say his college career in major college basketball. If some program can go hire the AD at Baylor and Liberty University did that, I think there's somewhere in the margins where people go, eh, well, you know, after a period of time, we'll." We'll be comfortable with that, assuming, again, that all this stuff is accurate.
1: Right. So the reason I say that kind of conclusively is and why I don't really have any ambiguity over that is he's an adult. He's a head coach, paid millions of dollars. He knows the rules. If he got caught, I don't really have much sympathy there. But with the Yahoo story and look, it's, it's tremendous reporting by those guys to uncover these documents and you see them right on the right on the screen. But, you know, it ranges from Dennis Smith, who's on the Mavericks now, received, a, uh, according to the document, received $43,500. It ranges from that to, you know, uh, Fred Van Vliet's step the guy at Wichita State's stepfather getting $1,000. Or some kids, you know, going to P.F. Chang's with this agent. I don't know. I think I see, seeing all of this on one page was the moment I realized how apathetic I now am about players taking money. And I didn't always feel that way. You know, I used to be pretty adamant. If you broke the rules, you broke the rules. But I've also been fairly uh, middle of the road on the pay for players debate. But I think somewhere in the last few years, my capacity to be outraged about college athletes taking a few dollars here or there just vanished, especially given... And, and I don't even mean that necessarily just because, oh, the coaches are making this much and whatnot, and they're making all this TV revenue, just that we've had real life, awful scandals in college sports dating back to Penn State, and it just kind of reset the bar. And I think we've talked about that on here before, where it's hard to get all worked up like Mark Emmert did in his statement about what a, you know, what a crisis this is for college athletics that some kids took some money
2: yeah, I'm with you. I think Penn State was the bar for me. You know, Penn State came in the you know in the aftermath of the Miami scandal where you're talking about a lot of you know players getting extra benefits and getting you know, meals and drinks. And it, you just kind of looked at the volume of it, and you're like, okay, And then all of a sudden you're seeing real you know crimes and people's lives being ruined. And then obviously, there was other scandals, the Baylor scandal that cost our brials. And Ken Starr, the president of Baylor and the A.D. and McCaw, their their jobs. And you're like, there are actual these are violent crimes that are that are that were perpetrated allegedly in some of these other scandals that we're talking about. You're like, okay, that's the context. And I think like what you said, you know, where I come on the pay for play side of it is I'm not I'm open to the dialogue of it. I think it's complicated. And I think it's complicated in how, how you would do it more than I would be offended by it, that it could be done. But again, when you start talking about, did this player have a meal with this guy? And I, you know, I want to bring this into a broader context of college football. You know What's different with college football versus college basketball, a couple of things. First of all, the NBA has its, its one-and-done rule. Where you would have a player, and DeAndre Ayton would fit this, where he can't jump right to the NBA. He could jump to the developmental league, or he'd go off to Europe or somewhere international and spend a year. But, you know, you can't do that. The other thing that to me is very different, and I've had this conversation over the weekend with a bunch of college football coaches, is you may have a five star guy, a four star recruit. There's no certainty that they are going to be pro players. There just isn't. Whereas with the, with, you know, college basketball, these guys are so close to being NBA talent because the developmental physical side of it is just much different. It's way less projecting than it is with college. So, you know, let's say some of these guys that have come through, you know, you're looking and saying, oh, you know, was somebody going to do this for Ricky Town a couple of years ago? Because at one point he was the number one ranked, you know, overall recruit. And it's just like, it doesn't make as much sense. That's not to say that there's not widespread cheating going and going on in college football. You know, there has been, and from people I've talked to, they think it's even worse now than it was you know ten years ago. But I think college basketball is in a different place. I think because there is so much more of an AAU element to it and because it's a little more freewheeling, when it gets to the prospects in general. Now, it's, the college football has kind of drifted in that direction, certainly, but it's not as far down the road as college basketball already is.
1: I mean, I think that money is being funneled to athletes and their families in both sports, but the money's coming from different places. Because like you said, in basketball, you know, there's a huge incentive for NBA agents to uh, get build relationships with these kids as early as possible because they could be in the NBA within a year of getting to college. So obviously, that's why this Christian Dawkins guy would want to, you know, get in with DeAndre Ayton or, or any number of kids when they're still in high school. In football, yeah. like you said, there's not that yeah. incentive. Now maybe when they're actually about to be draft eligible, I'm sure that's going on. But in terms of recruiting, I think where we see that more, and we saw it with the Ole Miss case, is boosters, and and you know boosters who want their teams to win and want their teams to get the best players. That has traditionally been the way schools get in trouble in college football, not necessarily because of agents, although there have been a few... Andre Smith comes to mind over the years. There's been
2: there's been street agents who are around. There's been quote marketing guys who get involved. Yeah, it's you know but, it's
1: less. But they're likely. getting involved with guys who are juniors who are about to be go to the draft. Not or they could be recruits. getting involved
2: in guys who are sophomores who yeah. are you know on the front end of that. But you know I'll say this. I mean I know some when I say lower level agents I don't want to mean that they are low lives. But I mean I what I mean by lower level agents in this case are people who typically don't get first or second round guys. And one of them I know had this conversation with was like, I, I was surprised at how far in advance he works to establish relationships with the player's family. I mean, I don't think it sounds anything nefarious when I've heard of this. Of you know, the hey, I'm going to be in such and such town. I'd like to go to dinner to you know meet with you. I mean, it's not necessarily with the player, or it's just basically to to do that. I think when it comes to, I think that's a, more of the model right now—that's what's going on with with uh, with how the NCAA does it. Because they, I think, they would like to manage the the contact and the relationships, and I think coaching staffs would like to do that. So it's like people aren't getting swarmed underneath, you know, underneath the radar, which I think probably goes on. And if it go if it's going on, I think part of it it's almost like a level of plausible deniability. Which to get back to Sean Miller for a second. I want to say, you know, I think, you know, I, we're friendly with all these guys who are reporting this stuff. I, I think Slabaugh is a really good reporter. The part that surprised me a little bit with this Sean Miller piece is just, you know, you would think on some level, you know, the skepticism says head coaches, aren't you, you know, don't you have some level of plausible deniability to not be directly involved with this? It's because I don't think anyone is surprised at all that there's widespread cheating at very high levels in college basketball. I mean, I don't know how accurate the movie Blue Chips would have been from whatever it was 20 years ago, but you know, I, I think we've seen this level of stuff. We've talked to our friends who cover it. To me, it's much less of it's it's much uh, less of an open, much more of an open secret than it than it would be, I think, in college football.
1: So that brings us to kind of the the changing climate. And look, I don't. We live in a little um, subculture on Twitter where I feel like it's overwhelmingly pay the players, pay the players. I don't know if that represents the public as a whole. The last time I saw a survey about this, it was still like the slight majority, a little over 50 percent of the country or of whoever they surveyed, doesn't think college athletes should be paid above scholarship. But when I see Mark Emmert, he, was, he puts out a statement, he goes on CBS and he says something, that, you know, they formed a panel as they often do, right? They always form these task forces and these committees. Condoleezza Rice is chairing it on how to clean up college basketball. And he had a in his statement. He said something to the effect of, you know, the, these kind of people have no place in college sports. And I just want to say, like, Christian Dawkins is not in college sports. And, and so I feel like they're trying to fix an unsolvable, an unfixable problem. They can regulate what Sean Miller does, and they can regulate, to some degree, you know, the eligibility of their players. But if an agent wants to give money to a player, there's really nothing the NCAA or college sports can do about it.
2: I mean, can they go to the can they go to the NBA and say, "Would you decertify this agent for ethical conduct?"
1: Sure, I mean, the NBA did decertify Andy Miller, but only after they rated his office. you know. I don't think the NBA cares. It's not the NBA's job to enforce NCAA rules. If they do find no, out somebody think... was acting unethically, yeah, they'll do that, but I don't think they're going <laughs> to you know devote resources to actively monitoring it and by the way I think sometimes the one and done thing that gets conflated to as some sort of college basketball it's an NBA rule you know if you want if you don't think there should be one and dones and you think players should be able to go straight to the NBA well then the NBA has to change its rule that's that's not an NCAA rule but my point is you know I think they need to seriously revisit and from you know and consider blowing up the model of and and just kind of ask the question, why? Why is it so important to us that these players can't have relationships with agents? They've already, by the way, in, in baseball and hockey, where you know players can either come right out of high school or stay in college for a little bit, because of the fact that they have to make that decision coming out of high school, they are allowed to have agents. They can't have agents once they start their college career, but they can use an agent when they're making that decision coming out of high school. So why is it okay in that sport and not another? You know, I think if you took the stigma off of it and said, "Yeah, okay, you know, we, we can't really do anything about that if an agent wants to recruit a player. We don't want the schools paying the players, but if an agent wants to do it on the side. Like, what's the harm there?" Then you might actually be able to clean it up a little bit because then they wouldn't be they wouldn't have to kind of go through so many levels, right? They wouldn't have to bribe an assistant coach to then pay the player. just pay, You could just pay him if if you think the kid is worth that, and you know, then they would have to pick and choose that way.
2: Yeah, I think that would be a kind of a game changer after they sort through some of this. I think it's so complicated, and I think there's ways that they have to get into it going, okay, what is going to be in the greater good? Because the NCAA model as it is is so outdated, but I do think it's it's worth reminding people. We are talking about, like, 1% of athletes who have, you know, probably the ability to make this money outside of what's going on. So do you shake up the model entirely for that 1% of NCAA athletes?
1: No, mark? that's why I've never been in favor of, and I know some people are, of just like flat out making them salaried, salaried yeah. employees of a university. Well,
2: it changes it when they become employees. I mean, you yeah. talk to any lawyer. once. Like, that changes everything when they become employees, and also, you know, all these transfer rules and all these other things they're subject to,
1: the hours that they put in. Well, um, oh, I mean, most at the most basic level, you could just fire people, right? If you're a paid employee, and let's say you're a five-star recruit coming out of high school, and a year or two in, it becomes clear that you're not going to be the guy they thought you were. They just fire you. So Doesn't I that
2: happen to us, too? It yeah, right to in. some degree,
1: running kids off, sure, but, you know, there's... Well, let's put it that way. Well, I mean it would, there would be a big difference between and I'm not condoning running kids off by any means. But if you said, "All right, we don't think it's going to work out here. You should transfer." You then go transfer somewhere else and be on scholarship there. In this case, you'd literally be losing your your salary. So look, it's not going to happen. So it's not even worth entertaining that discussion. It's not going to happen. But why why can't they, you know, I think I think a phrase that started to get thrown around maybe with the O'Bannon trial that I've seen take off is the Olympic model. You know, what would be the harm? Remember a few years ago, Johnny Manziel got in trouble for signing autographs? Oh, yeah, yeah. What would be the harm if he made a few thousand dollars? Yeah,
2: name and likeness? No. I mean, Jeremy Bloom made that similar point before that because he was a professional athlete and then something else. Uh, Again, that's a small percentage. I think – this isn't me playing devil's advocate. This is me just throwing out. The idea would be, let's say you have you know 25 recruits in a class, and let's use the example of, of Minnesota State or some school that doesn't exist, you know, the, not that just some, some random school, and they have big boosters that have either car dealerships or whatever they have. They could do deals with these with each of these recruits, and say we're going to put you you know pay you for this we're going to give you a car or whatever to drive around in this i mean that's an extreme example but if you think about some really big schools they have they have companies they have like most coaches in in division 1 football get car dealers you know where they for the for as long as they work there i'm sure some big booster could say hey we're going to every recruit that signs we're going to make sure that they get a car because we want you know, Johnny Smith seen driving around in our car and then they are spokesman for the car company.
1: Phil Knight could, could make every Oregon or give every Oregon recruit a Nike deal right out of high school. They could also have them design their shoe and do what, you know, like, I mean,
2: there's that, I think that the slippery slope on this is that there are enough boosters and even if they're not huge boosters where they can take care of, you know, these recruits once they get there or once they agree to sign and then all of a sudden you're talking about the money is going to be different than what you're envisioning I mean, just to bring it back to college football a little further so part of my just you know discussion with this one coach i said do you think it's different than what the the, the football and the basketball side and this person said to me and this is an, a longtime sec coach who spent a lot of time in the sec lots of local people in the sec stuff do outs do stuff outside the coaches right and it's like you know it's not that's not a shocker and i said well do you think it's more now or less than it was, you know, a decade or so ago. And he said, I think it's more. And the reason why is because I I think kids see the money because there's a lot more transparency and accessibility and they are desperate to support their family in a lot of cases. And this is an opportunity to do that.
1: I would imagine it's also easier than it was a generation ago for a a booster or whoever to identify the kids. That's the accessibility. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, that's the accessibility part you know they're talking about it's just you know you don't even have to you can just be on twitter and follow you know certain teams and look at, or look at what your your tight ends coach
1: who he follows and see who he tweets and then at. you can dm the recruit exactly well probably the football equivalent of this scandal will come at some point but i'll be curious to know you know i'd just be curious how the and maybe you guys can email us at the audible at gmail.com and let us know how do you feel about extra benefits scandals? Do you feel any differently now than you did five years ago? Maybe you don't. Maybe you think these kids get a scholarship and and anything above that should be kind of heavily enforced. But I I would just leave with this. Uh, you know, as I was thinking about this and how much things have changed in a short amount of time, when Cam Newton happened, you know, middle of the season of this Heisman season, eventual national championship season, we I mean, couldn't get any more explosive than that. And I just remember people being indignant that he was able to keep playing. He was able to keep playing because basically they concluded that his dad was doing all of the soliciting. Which is a very odd, curious distinction to me. Yeah, and so they became known as the Cecil Newton loophole. And and everybody was very adamant that they need to close that loophole. They need to close that loophole, and they did. They changed the rule so that if that were to happen again or a parent were to get caught – soliciting money the player would be ineligible and i i wonder if that happened today if the reaction would be different you know if it would be well his dad was just trying to get the best deal what's the big deal uh he's he's worth more than that i mean i think we can all agree that and yeah. this is where i should stop and make sure that auburn fans know i'm not saying that he got paid at auburn it was never proven but if he did get hundred eighty thousand dollars, i think auburn got 10 times that, if not more, you know, return on its investment. And again, not saying that happened. Yeah,
2: it's, it's yeah. I I, I agree with you. I'm curious to see what our listeners think. If they, I don't say if you care, but if you get, if you think it's worth outrage, is probably a better way of framing it. Because I think people care. I mean, I I read the stories and looked at it and go, okay, which schools have players who are tainted in this in some, some way or another? And like you said... Like, the, the money around Dennis Smith, allegedly, is not insignificant.
1: No. And, and, and by the way, there's also kind of an even deeper question than this, which is that a lot of people are asking themselves six months into this, is why did the FBI get involved in this in the first place? Like, like, how do we feel about the fact that the federal government is spending all this time and resources basically trying to enforce NCAA rules?
2: Well, do we know that that's what they're doing, or do we think that there was some kind of component... As it related to perhaps they were digging around thinking there's an organized crime element to this. Do they think that there was something related to point shaving? Do they think it's something more nefarious than this? And this
1: is what kind of got caught up in in the net. That would make more sense. I mean we've seen over the years – my alma mater went through this when I was in college – point shaving schemes that were uncovered by the FBI. Like that would make a lot more sense than – Somebody in the federal government decided, you know what, They're, we're sick of hearing about college athletes and bribery and we're just going to do something about it. Cause that doesn't still, sound right, yeah. It's still unclear to me that it's even a winnable case. You know, there, There's a lot of legal people who've weighed in on this who think – that because the, the crux of the argument is, okay, it's if, it, if, if you're alleging fraud, then who's the victim of the fraud? And they said the victims are the school's. The schools are the victims because once those assistants took those bribes, then they were knowingly recruiting kids who were poor and eligible. They're putting the schools at risk. That's a kind of a flimsy argument. The same people, the people who are representing the schools and trying to get the best players to those schools, are then that the schools themselves are now victims. So I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot that needs to be played out, though. I will say. A few of the defendants, and remember, it's not just assistants, it's a guy from Adidas and a couple other people that got mixed up in this, and I don't remember which ones it was, but a few of the defendants went before the judge a couple weeks ago, arguing that the case should be dismissed, and he didn't buy it. So, at least at this point, it's still going forward. What do you say we turn our attention to the Combine? We are pleased to be joined on the Audible by Rich Eisen from NFL Network and the Rich
2: Eisen Show on the Audience Network. So... Rich, how many years have you been doing the combine?
3: Oh God, our first year, our first year of an off season for the NFL Network or non playing season, as we refer to it, was 2004, and you know we were about 14, 15 weeks old, and people trying to still figure out what we were doing, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't, not, 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 I didn't mean. Uh, I don't mean to say within our own walls I mean from outside of our walls we're trying to figure out what we were about so going to Bill Polian and the competition committee despite being you know the NFL network the um, the, you know the whole
2: so what are you on the air for like literally on the air for about 30 hours over the next week just from from lucas oil for you so obviously you do NFL all, all year round and then you know this time of year you you go deep into the draft and, and and in the college game what is the hardest most challenging aspect of of what you're doing leading the broad, broadcast for the whole week of the
3: combine uh, I mean look to be honest with you Running backs go through having the conversation that I think we're going to have this year, which is the benefit of drafting somebody top five. You know, if you think you're getting the next Ezekiel Elliott or the next Leonard Fournette, as opposed to sitting there and hoping that you can get the next Alvin Kamara in the third round, you know, having that conversation about draft. for Thursday and Friday of the draft.
2: Well, as a big, as people know you, know you're a huge Michigan fan. You went to Michigan. You obviously watch a lot of Big Ten football. How often does it come up where you hear Mike say something or Charles or, or Daniel Jeremiah make a comment? You're like, eh, I don't know if I agree with that. That <laughs> assessment. Happens,
3: you know, and I'll, I'll throw it out there. and You know, but I need to come correct because Mayock will just arch his eyebrow and kind of look at you and like, you know, hey, man, I've been the one grinding tape for the last few months. eyes, bring the perspective. because wherever Cousins goes creates some form of a uh, free agency domino effect that will that will manifest itself on the draft order and who goes where from the quarterback draft class of 2018.
2: So who intrigues you the most? What storyline or what player story is most interesting to you this week as we get to India?
3: Well, you know, having been on my show, the man love I have for Saquon Barkley. Yeah. You know,
2: and... You're preaching to the choir here, man.
3: How in the world do you not, with Odell Beckham coming back and Sterling Shepard proving his ability, and they drafted Ingram last year and at tight end? How do they not just take Barkley, stick him behind Eli, and say, "Which one of you guys do you want to stop?" <laughs> and go for it. And that to me is just. Fascinating aspect because whatever the Giants do it to does have quite an effect as to what happens after that. I mean, everybody's putting Chubb from NC State in their mock drafts and putting this uh, horseshoe on the side of his helmet like that's exactly where the Colts are going to take. And there's an interesting aspect of whether they can go with that or the, the kid, the uh, guard from uh, Notre Dame, yeah, Quentin Nelson, very yeah. high on. You've got to protect Andrew Luck, that this is a guy that you could put in your offensive line for the next. NFL team at the next level. How good can he be, and do the Giants do that? What they do there uh, has a large say in what the you know what Eli's end game for his career is going to be. I'm I'm really keen to know about that.
2: Yeah, Saquon definitely has some star power. He grew up in the Northeast. He committed to Rutgers at one point before ended up at Penn State. Think that'd be a lot of fun I want to ask you so you had alluded to this a little bit before so you've been doing run rich run which is kind of the every man going through the 40 at the combine you've cracked the the six second barrier one time I believe correct a couple of times couple of times sorry. yes
3: that's a, but I have I have um, failed to crack that barrier more often than not do
2: you I mean do you train for it do you watch what you eat going in do you get like
3: life I do not look the way I view it this Uh, It was it was a lark at first. Now it's a charitable venture that I take very seriously. You know, uh, I I just don't know if if it it becomes if if I start like training and really wanting to blow it out and you know and that does it does it lose its as you point out every man
2: it loses the charm. Nobody wants to see Will Ferrell come out in old school with a six pack. (laughs)
3: It's all yours. It's all yours. I don't know if that would fly with my, my wife. And, but uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm I'm you know, I work out. I, I try to eat right. I try to you know do what I do. But uh, I saw somebody tweeted out when the Olympics started that they would love to have just like some every guy, normal person, come out and do all these, you know, do all the uh, sports to show to people sitting at home thinking that it's so simple they could do it. I provide that service every NFL scouting combine. That's what I do. So, you know, and I don't do any other drills. It's just 40. It was born out of Terrell Davis laughing at me when we were waiting at that 2005 scouting combine to bring it all full circle. You know, TD turned to me and laughed at me when I just, out of sheer boredom, waiting to tape something, said to him, like, how fast you think I can run the 40? And he laughed. And I'm like, I'll show you. And I got up in my lace-up dress shoes and got out there and ran at 677. Had no idea Entire crew was on a break. That's why we were waiting. That's why we were chilling. Had no idea that um, our steady cam operator grabbed the camera and shot it, and somebody hit play and record in the uh, in the in the truck, and they surprised me with it on the air on Total Access that night. We aired it, and then the next couple of days, Matt Millen of the Lions at the time, and and uh, Seattle's Mike Holmgren both saw it on TV and requested. really wasn't wondering if I should do it again. And Mike Homer asked, are you going to do it again? And I'm like, should I? And he goes, you know, you got to give the people what, you, what they want. <laughs> what? <laughs> said, just, just be careful. He goes, be careful. Don't get hurt. So I did it again and then, you know, kept doing it over and over again, even though the network wasn't really uh, too keen on it, I don't think. Until one year, you know, I blew my hamstring out. <laughs> Mayock insisted that I show that on the air because I'm like, all right, I didn't finish, so I guess we're done here man, I goes, you got to show that. That's the most important thing. you got to show that you tried. And I'm like, okay. And then the next year, they, um, they actually went ahead and came up with this simulcam technology that breathed complete new life into this to see how fast I am against the real runners. And as of three years ago, we're now raising money for charity. So anybody who's listening to your pod here, they should go to work, dressing, and, and at their workplace in a safe-for-work environment, run the 40 video it upload it to nfl.com runrichrun and then most important hit the donate to saint jude button that's right there on the page and give whatever you can because um every single dollar counts towards saint jude children's research hospital where the idea is to get kids better and make sure parents don't ever once see a bill it's it really is just an incredible place on earth and hopefully my Non-prepared silliness uh, can, can lead
2: to more cash. You're pretty good at this uh, transition stuff. Before I let you go, I do want to ask you, as I mentioned, you're a diehard Michigan guy. Yep. Jim Harbaugh came in, did an awesome job at Stanford, did some remarkable work turning the 49ers around. Good first year, really good first year at Michigan. Lost some momentum, has not beaten the hated rivals from Ohio, Struggle with Michigan State. Tell me and tell fellow Wolverine and Big Ten folks why your confidence has not wavered that Jim Harbaugh will eventually lead the Wolverines to the playoffs.
3: Because I, I believe in him, and, you know, I believe in him. He's definitely got the passion for it. And I'll be honest with you, I mean, what, what other option is there? I, I, I'm, I'm not going to be part of any sort of um, uh, um, alumni, you know, squeeze play to get him the hell out of there. Uh, it makes no sense to me. I mean, he was my, I'll always be biased towards him. He was my first quarterback. He's a bridge to the boat years. He understands what it takes to, to win there. And the one mystifying thing that I'll, you know, I've always asked you when we're on the air is, where's the, where's the quarterback prospect? You know, where's his Tua? Where, where's well, his
2: guy is there now. It's just a matter of if the NCAA clear Shea Patterson well, this year or not. Well,
3: what everybody's telling me. You're telling me that. Everybody's telling me that, that if Shea Patterson gets cleared, then. You know, the one thing I've heard is that, you know, despite all the quarterbacks that have been there from, you know, Rudolph to, um, you know, Spate, who have performed well under, under Harbaugh, that he's never had yet the one, you know, quarterback talent that makes every other player on the sideline stare over their shoulder to take a look. just wondering if, you know, what,
2: what I'll ask you this, what does knows departure mean? What 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 do I take from that? Uh, I think it, you know, from all I've heard is it's been a pretty messy transition with the staff. You know, you have Pep Hamilton there. I'm not sure everybody, you know, getting everybody on the same page. I think Jim McElwain comes in there. You know, he was a good offensive coordinator for Nick Saban. I think he comes in there thinking that, You know what? Last year they were breaking in all new receivers. You had, you know, lost two really good receivers and a really good tight end. So they had some experience now with those guys. I know there was some injuries, but they had some experience. I just think if you get Shea Patterson with more experienced receivers, I think McIlwain will help settle things down a little bit. You know, Ed Werner, who now becomes the offensive line coach, you know, he was in an off-field role, but he was Urban Meyer's offensive line coach he did a really good job in that role. The year Ohio State won the national title, they had a bunch of mismatched parts at the beginning of the year, and by the end of the year, you know they were dominating Alabama. You know some of that had to do with with Ezekiel Elliott, but I think he's a really good piece. I like some of the moves that that Harbaugh's made, and I think it's key that you know importantly they have Don Brown on the other side. But oh,
3: he's great. I mean, my gosh,
2: and they're loaded on defense. I'm looking
3: forward to yeah. seeing Maurice Hurst at the combine. I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to seeing more talents coming out out of Michigan on that line, and the players that are coming out of there defensively. I'm not concerned about it. Um, you know, obviously, I'm concerned about them being three and outed back on the field as much as they were this past year. But you know, it's just it's it's tough to handle. It's tough to see the losses. There's no way uh, around it. It's tough. It's tough when you you know when you lose to Ohio State again. When you, you know, knock JT Barrett out of the game and then the kid who hardly does anything all year long comes out and, you know, wings it around to beat your third-string quarterback where both the second and third-string quarterbacks didn't look like this kid from Ohio State. You know, talent, I understand about talent around it's tough to handle, tough to take, but I am not going to be the one part of any group of people that turns turns their back on Jim Harbaugh because... Uh, that's that's, um, that's not. I'm not going to do that not in a million years.
2: Alright, well Rich, we appreciate your time. For people, check out uh, Run Rich Run, as you said. It's Thanks, for much. a great cause with St. Jude. And we can watch you on NFL Network and uh, Thanks, see a lot of it. I Thanks, Rich. appreciate
3: when you come on my show.
2: Thanks. It's always a pleasure.
1: Alright, let's get to some listener emails. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com this first one, it just the the person's name just says B. Rady. R. A. D. Y. Wish he told us what the B stands for. Hi guys, I enjoyed your show. I listened to the Shea Patterson Dennis Dodd show. I didn't I didn't realize we had Shea Patterson on that episode. <laughs> Patterson was born in Ohio, played high school football in Texas, Louisiana, Florida. When he picked Ole Miss, the Rebels were widely viewed as the school most likely to be paying players. In that 2013 crazy class, crazy good. There's no public evidence that Patterson took cash from Miss, but minimally, he had to be very aware of the serious allegations before his decision to play there. Given that, why would he get a special waiver now? I would think he should be given less leeway given his decision to play for such a program.
2: Well, I want to reiterate what I said the other day. It's just what he's saying is it's under the category where there's smoke, there's fire. And just because all those things are, are what uh, B. Brady just said... It doesn't mean that Shea Patterson is going to go in there and, and expect this school. There's a good chance it's going to end up with a postseason bowl ban. I think that's, you know, you can't predict what the NCAA system of justice is going to find and how it's going to punish. So that's why I think it's a slippery slope if, if we're going to go down that of well, they're under investigation. They should have known. Buyer beware. I, can, and, you know.
1: And I think, as you know, the NCAA. Process with with infractions and sanctions is so complicated and so inconsistent from one year to the next. People like you and me who followed it for 20 years still don't always follow it. So I don't know how a 17- or 18-year-old kid could be expected to understand it. If the coach says, oh, it's not a big deal, I could see why he'd be inclined to just believe him.
2: And I'm sure a lot of the other schools that were trying to lure him away from Ole Miss were telling him, hey, they're going to get this, this, and this. They're going to be they're going to get the death penalty. They're going to be on probation. They're going you know get a postseason ban. But it's hard to take a lot of that stuff at face value because you know, I'm sure he heard that other schools were cheating, and I'm sure you hear so much negative recruiting. How do you how how are you supposed to know what's what's really happening and what is just speculation? Sure. The next question is from Stu's favorite podcast person, Jason Gorlewski of Columbia, South Carolina. Fantastic pod, as always. I've heard a lot of people describe Georgia as, quote, the next Alabama. Does this mean that Georgia will win a national championship? Or does it mean that Georgia will win five national championships in the next nine seasons?
1: Thanks again. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to predict that last part to happen because I don't know that many people are ever going to do that again. You know, your alma mater came close, though. In that run, did they win four nine seasons? Uh, They won 83, 87, 89, 91. And they played for it in '86 and '92, so it was a bit of an Alabama-like run at the time. But the uh, crazy part with Miami was three different head coaches, different head
2: not, coaches. Nick, not Nick Saban. I, I
1: think but, that uh, to answer his question, when I say, when people say Georgia's the next Alabama, I mean, first of all, they're saying that mostly because he has just carbon copied that that <clears> program. <throat> Kirby Smart has what I look. What I would say is, I think going forward, Georgia is going to be pretty consistently a worthy adversary to Alabama. That they will be competing with each other year in and year out for the SEC championship and possibly playoff spot. And I don't think Alabama's really had that to this point. They had, you know, Florida at the very beginning before Urban Meyer left. They've had Auburn, you know, for a year here or a year there, but Auburn's been very inconsistent. I could see Georgia being you know, I could see those two, kind of like uh, Florida and Tennessee back in the 90s, being constants at the top of the conference.
2: Well, also a couple of things that help it is the SEC East is so down around Georgia, where you have both Tennessee and Florida, the traditional power, other traditional powers, reloading or rebuilding. And the rest of it, you have some teams that have kind of risen up to be decent, but certainly not at the playoff caliber level. So to kind of hint back to Jason's question, what percentage would you give Georgia to win a national title within the next four years? Would you set it over 50%?
1: No, I wouldn't set it over 50% for anybody but Alabama because it's so hard to win a national title. But I would set it over – I would say there's a better than 35% chance that they'll win a national title in the next four years okay so
2: let's say there's alabama we're going to take them out of the equation for a second these which teams would you say are next most likely to win national titles in your mind i will throw out the teams and this is the order i would put them in clemson as the next most likely in the next couple of years i'm not saying into just in 2018 it could be 2019 2020 clemson georgia ohio state washington you agree disagree
1: do I just, do I agree with that exact
2: order? Yeah, let me take Washington out. Let me just put the next three in.
1: I agree about Clemson being next in line because they're already there. you know yeah. they, they already have, frankly, to me, the same kind of program that Alabama has. They've been in this in the playoff three years in a row. They're bringing back this ridiculous defensive line. I mean, I expect them to be right back in the mix this year. and I think we get caught up you know right after the game. Alabama has this great freshman quarterback you know, come out and win the national championship and all these other freshmen and everybody's saying, Well, you might as well just go ahead and book them for next year. Do you know that Alabama lost every starting defensive back they have? Like they have to replace and I'm including like the nickel back, they have to replace their entire starting secondary. And that's a pretty big deal. Now I'm not saying Alabama's gonna fall apart, but you know how it's a it's a fine line sport. Would that maybe be the reason they lose? In the SEC championship game, or in or they lose in the Iron Bowl again, but this time they don't get the committee's leeway. You know, like there's a fine line between winning another national championship and not getting the chance to play for it.
2: Mm, okay, do you agree with my my three and four options of the next? So it
1: was Clemson and then Georgia, then Ohio State. No, I put Ohio State higher because. As high as I am on Georgia, I'm very bullish on Georgia for the future. I'm not as bullish on Georgia for this coming season because of the great senior class they have to replace.
2: So, are you that, but yeah, but are you that bullish on Ohio State for this coming season?
1: Well, obviously, the quarterback situation is a is a question. But otherwise, you know, they too are in a place where they just reload year in and year out. They're and, actually in a much tougher division. Yeah, that's true. It's not as certain that they would even come out of their division, whereas I'd be highly surprised if Georgia – doesn't come out of the sec east by the way i mean we're talking about this you know dynasty that they're building what about dan mullen in florida florida has always been the school that you figured if they had the right coach that they would become the, the monster in the sec east again
2: i gotta see more from it i mean you know right now i mean we're we're riding a lot dan mullen did a good job at, at mississippi state it's not like dan mullen repeatedly had had top 20 teams there
1: no, I mean, he, he
2: consistently... He consistently eight wins for the last five years, and that's good at Mississippi State, but, you know, I I don't think... Right you can't, now, you I, can't, I, can't, re- I wouldn't yeah. put all my chips on the table with that. Well, you can't
1: night. recruit... Really, you really can't recruit elite classes in Mississippi You know, if they, Mississippi State has the 20th ranked class in a given year, that was a great year for them. At Florida, he's there's no reason why he can't sign the number one it's class. True. It's true, but I mean... We're going all this. Dan Mullen was
2: at uh, Mississippi State for nine years. Do you know how many times he had better than a 500 record in the SEC?
1: Um, I think I know the answer to that. I believe it was just once. It was just once. I mean, that kind of stuns me
2: a little bit looking back. Again, I think he did a really good job there. But But I also
1: know that Mississippi State would always be the team that at SEC Media Days they would predict to finish sixth or seventh. And they ne- and never, they never did, you know. Yeah, but always, they have,
2: They never did. But here's what they did: fourth, fifth, fifth, fourth, fifth, second,
1: fifth, fifth, fourth. So what are you saying? You think Florida missed that? Missed that one?
2: No, Struck I. Out? But but I no, but I, I think right now, um, my money's uh, on Kirby Smart in that one. Yeah, my money's on Kirby Smart. That's but I all think I
1: think they'll get a lot. Florida will get a lot better, possibly a lot better this season. I would be a lot but more.
2: I would be a lot more bullish on Florida if they hired Scott Frost or if they hired Chip Kelly.
1: Do we? But that wasn't an option. I mean, no, no. they, tried, I mean they tried. They tried. But, yeah. You know, the guys have to say yes. Yeah. No, all I right, agree. Bruce. This comes from Steve Charles. What is going on at Washington State? They were solidly in the top twenty-five all season and had two of the country's most noteworthy players in Hercules Mataafa and Luke Falk. Now both are gone, as well as six coaches, most notably. Bruce's baby, Mount Union alum Alex Grinch. And Mike Mike Leach had the Tennessee job until he didn't. I've heard stray remarks about the administration's unwillingness to spend. Is that it or is there more?
2: No, I think there's a lot of factors that go into this. And I think a lot of what Steve is talking about is, you know, the staff attrition. And I think there was, you know, interesting circumstances for a lot of the moves. Pullman is not for everybody. And spending a long time there, it it can be challenging on families that are Certainly not from there. I think the the moves that if I all kind of rattle through them of guys who left. I mean, Grinch, you know, his family is from Ohio. Went to Ohio. You know, he he took a job with Urban Meyer. I don't think that's a shock. He could have had more money from what I've told at other at some other schools. That was a big blow though because he did a really good job as a defensive coordinator. Clay McGuire was Leach's longest serving assistant, and he was a uh, he was the old line coach and had been, has been with Leach since he was in—I think he was in Leach's first recruiting class at Texas Tech. He's a Texas guy. His wife is from Texas. I just think that eventually they wanted to go home. For Jim Mastro, I think it was a, it was a chance for a fresh start at Oregon. So I just think that you know Roy Manning, I think his fiancée, lives in Los Angeles, and it's UCLA, and go, go to work. I mean, some of these guys left for, for quote-unquote, bigger jobs. I don't think it's necessarily— You know, the administration's unwillingness to spend. I just think that just like when Dennis Simmons left to go to Oklahoma, it's like Washington State versus Oklahoma. And you have more of a family connection within, you know, Washington State is much more remote unless you're from the Pacific Northwest. You know, the other thing about the Washington State situation, and this is, you know, an awkward transition, but, you know, they had something so tragic uh, happen around their program with Tyler Holinsky's passing you know, I think for a lot of folks there, it's, you know, it's been such a, such a rough off season. Uh, I almost think that it's hard to settle back into, into football mode and to talk about it, but, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, I think that, I think that, uh, you know, Leach was pretty confident in some of the guys he brought in. Certainly Tracy Clays was like kind of a, you know, in his mind, a proven defensive coordinator and and we'll see. I mean, it's clearly a very big Change in the staff dynamic around Leach, but you know, Leach is about as hands on as any coach when it comes to one side of the ball as he is with his offense, so I don't think that part's going to change much.
1: I'm pretty pessimistic about them for this coming season. Obviously, it's hard to say, you know, they're the guy who would have been the quarterback, you know, just a tragic passing, and so that's a part of it, but the staff turnover is as well, and also just. How tough their division is going to be? Washington, we've talked about, is going to be really good. I think Stanford's going to be really good. I think Oregon could be pretty good. So could be tough. And I
2: think I think Cal will keep improving. I mean, I think they'll be better than Oregon State, but beyond that, I don't think it'll be. I think that's. I think they're looking at probably fifth. If I had to predict it now, fifth. Wow, behind Cal. Yeah, I mean, Mike has not ever had a true freshman quarterback, and. Cam and Cooper may be the guy he's already there. He came in with a pretty big reputation, but it's just that system, you know, takes time. Now, he's got a walk-on that Trey Tinsley is a little bit, I guess, Sonny Cumbie-esque, you know, in terms of skill set and you know look whoever's going to be his quarterback is probably going to put up some big numbers and they do have some talented young receivers but they lost as steve pointed out i mean hercules modaf was a great college defensive lineman and luke falk was really good they lost a couple of really good offensive linemen and cody o'connell and cole madison they won't be that easy to replace so so uh, that's why i think they're probably looking at fifth and Again, that's a little bit of respect for Cal and the job that those guys have done, kind of taking that program a step forward. Next question for you, Stu, from Eric C. in Peoria, Arizona. If college players are allowed to transfer without a redshirt year, would more players accept an offer from lower-level school if it comes with a guaranteed playing time? I could see a kid who wants to prove his worth taking the gamble to try and win a better scholarship down the road. Love the pot and keep up the good work.
1: So I think at this point, we know that there there's no realistic proposal where everybody can transfer without a redshirt year. So the, so the thing where I assume he's talking about is the, the proposal that if there's a coaching change. And I was actually talking about this with Chris Vanini, our Group of Five expert. Think about – I don't know that anybody's thought about this. Well not, the, most people have not thought about this aspect to it. So to say that was in effect this year and Scott Frost goes to Nebraska – Scott Frost had a really good team at UCF. What in I, that oppor, that would be an opportunity for Mackenzie Milton and, all, and a bunch of other really good players to transfer up without repercussion. Yes, so but if you it's not 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 the rule lose that, the coach, you would lose a lot of the players.
2: But we talked about that last week with Dennis Dodd, how that's the rule. You cannot follow a coach who. I'm
1: leaves. not saying follow him. I'm saying for a team to be as good as UCF was, they clearly have a lot of guys who could step in and start for a Power 5 school, mm-hmm. but but aren't going to do that because they don't want to sit out a year, now here's their chance. So so this is
2: like the grad transfer situation with with the starting quarterback in Hawaii now going to Oklahoma State.
1: Correct, but across – but they could be across – Without the grad transfer part. Right? Without the grad yeah. transfer part and, and pretty much across any position. I, I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes this these um, worries get overblown. At the end of the day, like, most kids like the school they're at and – like their teammates and like this, you know, the, the academic part of it, and they're not going to up and transfer just for that reason. But to his point, you know, I, everybody wants to play for the Glamour program. So if you have the chance, I don't think you're going to turn it down to go to a Sunbelt school where you're going to get a lot of playing time. But, uh, you know, again, anytime that there's a really successful group of five team and the coach parlays it into a bigger job under this proposal, the players would get to parlay it into a bigger job, if you will, as well.
2: Yeah, and I think the advantage certainly is not just you know proving your worth, but you're also getting live reps early on, and you can develop more. Some of these guys are seen as developmental players. Then again, you know if you could do that without penalty, you could go to junior college and do that too. Though,
1: most guys, I would assume, like how many guys know in before they sign or before they get to campus that they're gonna you know they're gonna need that developmental year. Like doesn't. I would think most kids go there assuming or, or hoping that they're going to be able to play right away. You would
2: think, unless the coaches are, you know, it depends on what position they play if you're an offensive line. But if, if you're a running back or some, you know, some you kind of get on the, you know, most athletic get on the f- field now position mm-hmm. where you're contributing, probably not as much so. Um, but it is an interesting just, you know, topic because of of just, you see all these guys bouncing up in college basketball you don't see it as much in college football just because of the numbers aren't quite the same. And it's, there's a little more, that's a little trickier to plug in and play.
1: Yeah. The up transfer thing is a, is pretty common in college basketball. I feel like Xavier every year has a guy who came from central Michigan or something like that, who's playing his final year there. And it's, you know, across the sport that way. I remember a couple years, Michigan State. A couple of years ago, Michigan State had one of their better players come from Valpo. So it's it's what it is. Is that the football example would be Vernon Adams. Like that right. was the best example recently of a guy who. But he had no offers. No, what I'm saying, he he, yeah, he didn't. He didn't have that option coming out of high school. He's saying a guy who has the option coming out of high school. To either go well, to- it
2: would be it would be it would actually be the kid I did a story on the other day, Brevin White, who goes to Princeton. Now he wouldn't leave because he want you know you want the Princeton experience and the Princeton diploma, but you would go to a because he had opportunities to go play at Alabama and all these other big schools, but he still wanted to go to play at Princeton, and obviously that's a FCS
1: program right. yeah, there just aren't that many kids that would even be in that situation to say, well, I could go to Auburn, but I may have to, it may take two or three years before I get on the field, or I could go to FAU and start right now.
2: Yeah, well, I think a lot of it too, some of these kids who end up at the FCS level, it's their end up at, at like like big academic programs. So it's like, it's a little different for them. And if you're at that, and it's not to say there aren't great academic programs, but maybe the kid's not getting recruited by Stanford, you know, It's so it's a little different. But you do wonder, and the Combine's a great example of this, of like guys who just fall through the cracks. I mean, I have a story going up on SI.com today for the Combine about Leighton Van Esch. He was a no-star recruit, and he is going to be a big buzz in the NFL by the end of this week. I mean, there are a lot of examples of guys who either are from small towns or just physically were, you know, a little undersized, and it takes them some time, and— you know, I think it just it just there's so many examples of it. it's not to say that the recruiting star system is is there's no there's no validity into it. But it's just like it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast about development and development physically is a lot different with college football than it is in in college basketball.
1: All right. Well, again, send questions to the audible pod at gmail dot com. Send us your thoughts on the NC on the um, college basketball scandal and where you are on amateurism and pay for play we're very curious um where that stands right now in the in the court of public opinion and bruce have fun at the combine i know nobody loves a good st elmo's shrimp cocktail more than you do What? not <laughs> what? <laughs> <Isn't> that <laughs> I, the, I was under the impression that's what people do at the combine they just camp out at st elmo's and eat shrimp cocktail every day
2: yeah i i don't think that's quite accurate but yeah but the me part of it it's almost like it's like and nobody loves. And it's like, man, hey, have fun in Vegas. Nobody loves a good lap dance more than you do. So thanks.
1: Uh, I guess the by more accurate thing would be no, and this would actually be true. Nobody loves bench press reps and forty <laughs> times more than you do.
2: That's that's probably more apt. Thank
1: yeah. you. All right, see you guys next time. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? Please subscribe to the Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Give us a five star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's, for making this possible. I'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Subscribe to my college football site, The All American. Go to the theaudible and you'll get 20% off of an annual subscription. And if you aren't following us on Twitter already, you can do so. Bruce is Bruce Feldman, CFB. And Stu is S.L. Mandel. See you next time. Come on, get over here.
3: Ah, yeah. Oh, we'll talk
1: about it for years. Ah, yeah.